Uh, this morning, you'll notice that I don't have my normal mic on. Um, we have a guest speaker. I'm super proud to um, introduce you guys. He actually spoke here last, it was last year, I believe. He came and spoke. This is my friend Cameron. Now, Cameron and I worked together at Creekside. I was a children's pastor, and he was a youth pastor for a number of years. And um, he, he's become super, super close to my family. Um, he's not even just a friend. He and his wife, they're, they're family to, to me and my wife. And this is a really, really funny true story. When they first got hired at Creekside, I had, uh, I'd actually known Brittany for a little bit, his wife, just from camp and Lodi, and our churches had done things together. But I didn't meet Cameron until he came to work at Creekside with me. We invited him over for dinner like the first week that they had moved to California. They're originally from here, Washington. Within two minutes, my daughter Aurora is calling Brittany Auntie Brittany. Like it was, it was instantaneous. This is Auntie Brittany. And so then the next, the next day we said, hey, was it fun having Auntie Brittany Uncle Cameron over? She goes, no, just Cameron. <laughs> but it was Auntie Brittany and Cameron. But now it's Uncle Cameron, and we have secretly you know, pledged our children to be married together at some point. Whether it's Aurora marrying Luke or Avery marrying Luke, I know Luke is keeping both his options open with both the girls. It's really funny. But um, I love these guys dearly, and it's my pleasure to introduce to you guys. Uh, Cameron, come speak to you guys. Thanks. Oh, do you remember the, the first interaction we had when you picked us up at the airport for, for our interview? This, when you're interviewing for a new job, you know, you want, people are giving you their best. You want to be putting out your best. We get in the back of this car, and in the front seat are two guys I've never met. Me and Brittany are squeezed into the back, and the front seat is Pastor Dustin and also our worship pastor at the time. And so they're having this conversation. They're kind of talking to us, but they're, they start kind of arguing about this thing. We're like, is this real life, this conversation that's happening up there? They are legitimately arguing whether or not musicians that sing are athletes or not. <laughs> and I don't have the answer for you, but, but <laughs> Dustin might. But for 30 minutes in the airport, I had to listen to these two clowns <laughs> talking about whether or not musicians are athletes. I don't know if there is a worse way to scramble your mind right before an interview <laughs> than that conversation. But I got the job, so it worked out. No, as Dustin said, uh, we met them back in 2014. It's been an absolute joy uh, just, just showing up last night at your house and seeing 11-year-old Aurora is freaking us out uh, because we still remember a little two-year-old Aurora, Auntie Brittany and just Cameron. And so uh, here we are 10 years later. We have kids that absolutely love each other. Um, we just really have built such a great friendship with the Warfords. You guys have a great family. Uh, leading the helm here. So when Pastor Dustin asked me to share, of course, uh, I ghosted him first um, because that's kind of what I do on accident. Um, but then when I finally got back to him, uh, we won't have to talk about how long it took, but uh, I said yes because I remembered to pick up my phone. Uh, but we really are so thankful to be here with you today. Uh, I just have some pictures for you guys real quick. Uh, first is my wife and I. Uh, at Newport Beach last year, Brittany. Uh, we just passed 10 years of marriage. Um, yeah, woo, go us, because turns out that's a long time. Um, we just talked about that our 20-year anniversary, uh, our son will be 18, which freaks us out a little bit. But uh, speaking of kids, we have three kids together. We have Luke, who's here on the right, enjoying some mint chocolate chip. Micaiah in the middle is an absolute firecracker. She runs the show. Um, she scares me, if I'm being frank with you. 
probably is going to be president someday. Uh, and then Lily on the left, don't let her fool you. She likes to scream and cry. Um, and I promise we love her, but sometimes we just want to go like this. She's very loud. So we currently live about two hours north of here, a little place called Camino Island. Uh, it's a beach house, which is pretty neat. Um, we're just renting the beach house, so we, have, we wake up to a view of the water, Mount Rainier. Oh, it's been great. There's a big yard for the kids to play in. Um, there's trees for shade. There's a great entertainment space with two-car garage. And there's also mice. Mm, yeah, that's about how we reacted as well. So uh, this, is, this is a story I should tell, and I'll, I'll give you the quick version. But a couple weeks ago, we're sleeping. It's the middle of the night, dead of night. And uh, my wife's mom, who actually lives with us, uh, so my mother-in-law, Shannon, we hear from across the hallway, all of a sudden, just, ah! Like, did you hear that? Is that your mom? I'm like, I think so. We're like, all right, go back to sleep. She's, she's a grown-up. She's fine. But then a couple minutes go by, and she's still, ah, Cameron, Brittany, Cameron, Brittany. So I get up out of bed. I throw some shorts on, throw a shirt on, and I kind of stumble out into the hall. I'm like, what? And she's standing on her bed, on like the corner of the bed. She's like, he's right down there, he's over there, and it's trying to get me. <laughs> what are you talking about? So long story short, I run down. I, I haven't seen anything. I run down. I put on cowboy boots. I grab as many tools and buckets and boards as anything I can find, because I don't know what's in there. Could be a rabbit. Could be a mouse. Could be nothing. Could be a spider. And I start like blocking stuff off and like shaking down the thing with the... the the broom trying to get the mouse out and maybe in 30 minutes goes by and I got nothing. I'm like, there's nothing in this room. She's like, it was on my face. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but I can't think of a worse thing to wake up to. I don't know if I could live anymore, <laughs> to be honest with you. So I'm really hoping that that's not true. But I finally get under it and it scurries out and I'm like, yes, I got it. I'm going to catch this thing straight into the coat closet. Our coat closet is full of shoes and jackets. And so for the next two hours, I'm pulling out individually each item, shaking it out onto the ground, make sure the mouse is not in there, throw it away, all for me to get all the way done and there's no mouse. <sighs> I'm about to give up. I'm, it's been about two hours at this point. Both my wife and Brittany's mom are still sitting on their beds. They are not getting down. Uh, kids have woken up a little bit downstairs at this point. It's probably 3 a.m. now. And I hear a little rustling in the top of my, top of my front closet. Like, they can climb? <laughs> so I grab our, we have some rodent and insect spray just because we know the area that we're going to live in. We live right next to a field. And I start spraying this sucker with peppermint spray. I'm just so much so that it climbs itself down onto the clothing rod and looks me dead in the eye. And I said, what's up, Kimosabi? Here we go. <laughs> He's dripping from peppermint spray. He's not happy. And so I grab the broom. I kind of build like a little maze thing for him to fall out through the front door. And I hit him with the broom. And he gets down and he scurries out onto the front porch. I throw the door shut and I won. <laughs> and nobody slept that night. <laughs> the part of the story that doesn't feel real is about 30 minutes later, I was like, what if he was still out there? Like, what are the chances? I open the front door, and he's sitting on my front porch, <laughs> staring at me. 
That's a whole other 30-minute battle we don't need to get into. But I need to be able to sleep tonight, so we should probably stop there. But that's, that's our new house. It really is a beautiful house. But let me tell you, there's nothing worse than a little critter across the floor. So uh, if you need a pest guy, don't call me because I'm not going to answer anyways, as we know. But anyways, this morning I want to dive into a really well-known story um, that really just for me has had some new meaning um, being a, both a father, but uh, most, most importantly, a follower of Jesus. And that's the story of the prodigal son, or in this case, the lost son. And this happens when Jesus is teaching a group of people, as he often did. Uh, but the Bible specifically early in Luke 15 says that he is teaching to a group that includes tax collectors, sinners, all the Pharisees who were gathered to listen. And so he had an audience, really, of all sorts of different people. And as we go through this story today, I want to look specifically deeper and to three things along the way, and see how this story could just possibly apply to us further than the feel-good story that we get in Luke chapter 15. Does that sound good to you? We, we good there? Cool. So if you would turn to Luke chapter 15, whether you have a hard copy of a Bible, digital copy of the Bible, it's also going to be up on the screen. I just want to read through uh, about 20 verses of Scripture, and, and then we can kind of get into the content. Um, but this is the parable of the prodigal son, Uh, from Luke chapter 15. Verse 11 says, And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. So his father divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had took uh, and and took a journey into a far country where he squandered everything in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to uh, be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one would give him anything. When he finally came to himself, he said, how many of my father's servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned before you, uh, against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and now is alive again. He was lost and found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And they said to him, Your brother has come back. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the brother was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, These many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead, and now is alive. He was lost, and now 
is found. Let's pray real quick. Lord, thank you so much uh, for your word. I just pray that as we dive into the scriptures together today, that we would find pieces that might apply to our lives and be able to take and run with them this Father's Day Sunday. In, in Jesus' precious name, we all said, amen. amen. So I want to look at three different aspects of this story, which is kind of a long story, because I think that there are all sorts of principles we can take away on top of it just being an enjoyable teaching of Jesus's to read um, from the Bible. And the first thing I want to look at is how this entire parable is presented, and that is what I'm calling the decision. Okay, the decision is kind of the main point of the first part of this, par uh, this parable. Let's look back at verses 12 to 16 again. It says, The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming. He divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey, squandered it all away. So he went out, hired himself out to one of the citizens who sent him into the fields, and he lived with the pigs where he was longing to be fed with the pigs were eating. Decisions are important. Can we agree there? The first thing that Jesus shares in this story to all these different people listening was that this decision was the son's and nobody else's. And similarly in life, we often find that in our lives, the decisions that we make are ours. And we have to own those. And the second thing quickly is that Jesus shares immediately after the son squanders all his money away, he shares that he ends up in a pretty rough place, sitting living with pigs, wishing he could eat what the pigs were eating. And this would certainly have gotten a reaction from the crowd, especially because Jesus would have equated the son's situation to be the lowest of the low, living with the swine. People would have understood in the story that the decisions we make are important and the, de the decisions we make hold weight. I mentioned earlier about my three kids. My daughter, Micaiah, she's four now. Um, and she's right in that phase where she's really interested in learning about good decisions versus bad decisions. She'll often ask us, hey, mom, hey, dad, is this a good decision? Like, no. Yes, no, I don't know. You're confusing me. However, sometimes she doesn't ask. Some of us have been there. And sometimes she makes decisions on her own. And rather than stop the decision for her, I let her choose and make those mistakes and hope that nothing burns down. But what I'm doing is I hope that in turn she learns that the decisions she's making hold weight. Now, it's nothing crazy, really. Uh, oftentimes it has to do with dinner, and which leads to dessert, right? And so Mackie will say, do I got to finish my dinner? Do I have to eat all this? No, that's your decision to make. But that's your dinner. And then about 20 minutes later, when everybody else has handed a slice of cake for dessert, she'll say, well, where was mine? So, well... What about that decision you made? You decided you weren't going to eat dinner because you said you were full. And so she's learning in a very simple way that the decisions she makes hold weight. And it's not, it's, it's not the point that she's eating dinner, not eating dinner, whatever it is. It's not about the dessert. But maybe she'll start to understand, okay, maybe before I make a quick decision this next time, I could think a little bit more about this. Mom and dad often like to bring me dessert maybe I could have a few more bites and see what happens. You see, I imagine that it was not very long after the son was hanging out and eating with the pigs that he realized he probably made the wrong decision. The reality is we've been there. And I would imagine that everybody listening to that story would immediately think, yeah, that was the wrong decision. He shouldn't have taken that money and left. He shouldn't have squandered it all. 
But here's the thing. Jesus would be teaching in a way that he would be trying to relate to the people and share something that seemed like it could be real. They'd all have been in these scenarios before. They'd all seen somebody take the inheritance early. The people that Jesus would have been preaching to would have experienced either firsthand or secondhand this actual thing happen. They would have known somebody who had thrown it all away. And here's the thing. Although the story alludes to just the bad decision and how it impacts our lives, it also can remind us that there's another side to the coin and that the positive decisions we make or the redemptive decisions we make can make even just as much of a difference. So the second part of this would be that Jesus would share how the response happened. You see, we get two really clear and opposite responses to this poor decision that the son makes. One is much better, it's much more positive, but quite frankly, for the time and age, it didn't make any sense. And the other is more negative, but it's entirely more relatable to the people who would have been listening. So here's the first one, the, the, more, uh, the more positive response, but was, didn't make a whole lot of sense. And it came from the father, and that's the response that we mostly enjoy when we hear this story. And that response is the father's unconditional forgiveness. When he arose and came to his father, it says in Luke 15, he was still a long way off. His father saw them, felt compassion, ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring the best robe, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. My son was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost and found. That's what we want to hear as a listener in modern day. That's the part of the story that we like. That's the feel-good part. That's where we want it to end, because it completes the circle of the story that we enjoy. But the reality is that in that day and time, that response would not have been realistic. What this father does for his son that doesn't deserve it at all, would have caused some murmurs in the crowd from the Pharisees, the tax collectors, the sinners, anybody alike. They would have been so confused, wouldn't have understood, and they would more align with probably a different character in this story, the brother. Luke 15, 25 says, his older, while the older son was in the field, he came and drew near to the house. He heard, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come back. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Verse 28, here's his response. But he was angry and refused to go in. The second response we get is what I'm going to call understandable anger. This probably would have gotten some affirming head nods in the crowd. Nobody would have understood how the father could have just simply forgiven his son who squandered away everything when he really didn't deserve it. They would have much more understood the viewpoint of the brother who was angry and confused. Now, where in our lives have we experienced forgiveness that we didn't deserve? See, Jesus knew in telling this story that people wouldn't yet understand the idea of love and forgiveness. So he's still able to relate to the people listening by sharing both valid emotions from both sides. Sharing the brother's real and raw emotions while also showing a father who loved and forgave. But they probably related more to the brother. I think a day like Father's Day is a really good reminder um, to me and, and how easy it can just be to settle for understandable anger. 
because there are moments in each of our lives where we could show some very understandable anger. And it's not just fathers or parents in general, but for anybody who's ever been burned by somebody close to you, it's easy. It's justifiable to be angry when somebody burns you, whether it's as severe as the story of somebody taking a third of your wealth and leaving or just being blown off for a simple coffee meeting. Our instinct can be to cut that out, cut out the people that wronged us, and be understandably angry. Jesus knew that when he was teaching that. But to be able to show unconditional forgiveness where it's not deserved, that's the entire crux of the gospel. And they hadn't yet gotten to experience that. God had and has every reason to be understandably angry with us. But instead, he sends Jesus and shows us unconditional love and forgiveness. And that has forever changed our future. The decision, the reason, the, the response. And the third thing is the meaning of the story. I want to kind of give you a picture of how the people listening to this story would have understood it. Because you see, this story is so much more than Jesus sharing an example of a father's love for his son and forgiveness. You see, he would have known who was listening. He would have remembered the Pharisees, the tax collectors, the sinners in general. And he would have known that the minute he spoke about the son leaving and living with the pigs before trying to return, that every single person in the crowd would have been ready to write the son off and not give him a second chance. You see, in the Jewish culture, they recognize a ceremony called the kezah. It's literally defined as a severing of connections. And so what this meant in the Jewish culture, what the kezah ceremony was, what, uh, it meant that the people of the town or village who would have known about the son, it would have been a, a big deal. They would have known he left with everything. Um, they would have understood that for him to come back would mean he had probably blown everything, taken everything from his father and lost it. There was no chance he was coming back unless he hit rock bottom. And the way that a Kezah ceremony worked was that if the son re-entered town for any reason, because he had now been a disgraced Jew who shamelessly associated with the Gentiles, squandered his inheritance, audaciously returned home, he would be excommunicated. They would fill a large clay pot with burnt beans. They would break it at his feet and exclaim, you are cut off from your people, and he'd have to leave town and never return. Why is that important? Because every person in that crowd would have understood that when that son left, he was going to experience a kezah ceremony when he returned. There was only one thing, though, that was elevated above the kezah ruling, and that was the word of the father. If the father could reach his son first, the ruling himself he could make. And the town and the people would have to honor that father's judgment and would not be able to pass judgment themselves. Why is that important? In verse 20, it says, He arose and came to his father, and while he was a still a long ways off, his father saw him and felt compassion. He ran and embraced him, and he kissed him. You see, the father could have just patiently waited at home. He could have waited in the comfort of his own home with the rest of his wealth that he was saving up for his other son. But had he done that, the minute his son entered the village and somebody saw him, they would have commenced the Kezah ceremony. They could have excommunicated him for life. So no, 
He had to go daily. He had to search and wait the edge of town, hoping that he might catch a glimpse of his son. He wouldn't have known when. He wouldn't have known if it was ever going to happen. But he would have had to go and look and search and wait regardless because on the off chance that his son decided to come home, if it, on the off chance his son ever made it back, he would be able to give judgment before the people. And by an extension, the community, no matter what the son had done, there would be no keza ceremony. Just a quick little story about my son. Um, his school year has just ended. Um, and I mean, there's so many parallels as a father to a young son that I could make in this story. Um, but so he comes home from school the other day. He's got all his schoolwork. We're just, we are really proud of him and all the, the big steps he's made this year in school, made so many friends. Um, every conference we had, he's just had a really good experience with his teacher. Um, and he's really learning. But every once in a while, you know, a, an assignment will come home and we'll be like, what the heck are you working on? Um, and he, he brings this assignment in the other day and he just throws it all on the table like he normally does, doesn't think anything of it. And so we start flipping through and it says, what's one thing you don't know about me? And on his paper, what's one thing you don't know about me? And he writes, you never see me coming. <laughs> and we lost it. He had just never seen me coming. First of all, why he decided to write that, I don't know. But I read that and I joke and it's funny but the reality is, that's how this son would have felt. He's never going to see me coming. Dad's never going to. He also would have known what a Kazah ceremony was. He would have known that for him to come back to town to get back to his father's house was a long shot. And he was worried. He's never going to see me coming. You see, the entire purpose of this story is not just a feel-good story that a father welcomed his son back home. No, it's that in the midst of everything his son did wrong, with every right to be angry, with every right to let the Kazah ceremony take place, he decided to go out and wait and search without fail, just on the chance that his son might come home. Instead of revenge, he chose reconciliation. I feel like that could resonate with some of us. A lot of us maybe have made decisions for Jesus before, and maybe a lot of us haven't, but we often want to relate with the side of that story of the Father. But the reality is that we are way more closely aligned with the side of the Son. Broken, hurt, made poor decisions. We feel the weight of those decisions. And it changes everything for me when I know that it's not just God patiently waiting, twiddling his thumbs, saying, I, I hope you come back soon. But he's out there searching and waiting, knowing that when he gets to me first, he gets to pass judgment first. And that judgment is, I love you, and I care for you, and I forgive you. It doesn't matter what any other people say. I am your father, and I choose you. And that changes this story. This son who was dead was now alive. I want to invite the worship team back up as we close. Because that same reconciliation is readily available for us as well. Like I said, we want to align with the father in that story. And there are moments where we will get to. 
for those of us who have been burned or have kids or will have kids. But this morning, I want us to try and align with the sun a little bit, remembering that we're broken people with broken lives. And while we were still off squandering away whatever opportunities we had, God has relentlessly waited to meet us at our worst before anybody could tell us otherwise. He met us on the edge of town so that he could pass his judgment first and nobody else could say otherwise. Luke 19, 10, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Didn't say he came to wait for you to show up. It said he's actively looking, he's actively searching so that when you show up, he gets to pass his judgment, which is I love you and I forgive you. We gotta quit making it all about us. Because the truth is, there's nothing we can do as broken people to get any closer to God on our own. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's all about realizing that God, he's been waiting for us the entire time. And when it's finally, when we are finally ready to realize it, he welcomes us with open arms. Jesus is waiting for you. Not to shame you, not to abandon you, but to lift you up, to welcome you home. We have no fear for the Kezah ceremony because there's a God who says, I love you, I forgive you, and this is my judgment that I pass. You are redeemed, you are reconciled. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that a simple story that we can find in the Bible, just a parable that your son told can hold so much weight, can mean so much more than just the words on that page. Jesus, I pray that we remember that no matter what we've been through, no matter what we've done, that you've waited and searched and earnestly waited for us to come home. I pray that if and when we make those decisions, Jesus, we would be reconciled to you. We would remember that you forgive us, that you love us. And while we are still broken yet, you sent your son to die for us. Jesus, we love you. Thank you so much for the part you play in our lives, for being the father that we need in a time when we didn't deserve it. In Jesus' name, everybody said.